Hello, thank you for listening to today's episode. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, thanks for joining me today. Uh, What's happening at the moment for you guys? President Trump, President Trump might be giving uh, a State of the Union speech and it's reported that in a private luncheon prior to that he talked to people and said that war with Tehran uh, was closer than you think. So that's not particularly cheerful. Uh, What is in our corner is that more and more Americans might be waking up to the realization that the Republican Party is not just a cult, uh, but as is typical in democracies that have been taken over by fascism, they're complicit in a power-sharing exercise in which any crimes that they've committed just in the course of holding up their leader and retaining power are also crimes that they have to go to the mat for. They're sort of all-in crimes, as well as any prior crimes they may have committed that may have been uncovered by uh, Russians hacking into the RNC. So any electoral fraud that they documented, campaigns like the one from the Republican candidate in North Carolina, where he won the election, but that uh, result was later overturned because he was found to have employed people who went from home to home soliciting absentee ballots from people, not letting them fully complete them, taking them back with them to their Republican headquarters, filling them out with all Republican candidates, and then... Uh, adding them to their stash of of votes. So Mark Harris didn't succeed in North Carolina, but amazingly enough, even after being exposed to how a Republican candidate would cheat in that way, uh, North Carolinians still managed to elect a different North North Carolinian Republican congressman. So, uh, yeah. But I've promised today to talk about uh, racism and how it uh, can affect people and how there can be an interplay between racism and disease. So here we notice that racism shortens lives and hurts the health of blacks, black people by promoting genes that lead to inflammation and illness. So this was uncovered by a professor of, an associate professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Southern California. Uh, yes, African-Americans die sooner and bear a heavier burden of many diseases, including hypertension, heart disease, dementia, and late stage breast cancer. So when we think about uh, these differing rates of disease, we can now look at studies that have noticed significantly more activation of genes relating to inflammation. Uh, I'm going to scroll down to... Here is some little examples of discriminatory behaviour that's fairly entrenched in American society. So black people are more likely than white people to receive drug testing when prescribed long-term opiates, even though white people show higher rates of overdose. So we're not talking uh, net numbers or anything, we're talking rates. So amongst the population of white people, there's a higher percentage of those white people suffering from drug overdoses relating to opiates. Uh, And then within black communities, a less higher rate of actual opioid overdose, but nevertheless a higher rate of drug testing when they are prescribed long-term opiates. So we should see racism here as just over-adoption of negative conclusions about a particular racial demographic. So people sometimes fight against the idea of racism existing or systematic racism existing, but when you drill into it, maybe they, they just don't like the idea of being told not to make not to draw broad conclusions based on observations or data points that they've been exposed to. So when we label something as racist, we're arguing that those particular conclusions are irrational. So they've overextended beyond 
legitimate conclusions, the data doesn't support their conclusions. So in other words, maybe it's okay to make some internal uh, conclusions about cultural groupings of people, uh, but if you're doing it about a racial group of people, if you're doing it about anybody, you should still uh, make sure you audit your expectations and uh, don't just believe your prejudices are based in fact because you've heard a lot about those prejudices. You've heard a lot of data points produced on Fox News or something like that. You, you may have grown up in a racist society or in a society that's irrationally prejudiced against people of colour as a self-protective way to minimise long-standing guilt over historical mistreatment of African-American people. So people need to get a better relationship with shame, to be able to put down the shame of uh, historical persecution and so that they don't have to make up uh, irrational, erroneous and destructive conclusions, prejudicial conclusions about that group of people in order to feel better about what's happened. Don't be racist going forwards in order to feel better about racism that has occurred in the past. Does that make sense? And rather than using the term racism, perhaps I could use the term... Uh, hierarchical, um, discriminatory hierarchical thinking. Oh, I'll write that down. It's a bit wordy, but it's helping me come to terms with what I'm actually trying to say, and then maybe with some more work we can get there. Hierarchical racial thinking. Ah, negative hierarchical, no. We'll just stick to hierarchical racial thinking at the moment. I do, I do quite frequently read comments. So yes, I guess I'm providing some alternative entertainment to watching Fox News. Hi, Mr. Ed. Uh, hi, Jeff. And hi, Brian. So let's go back to the study. All right. Until recently, we scientists did not know the mechanism linking racism to health. So the function of genes may explain this relationship. Their study showed that genes that promote inflammation are expressed more often, and this is expressed in a genetic sense, not in a verbal sense, are expressed more often in blacks than in whites. Um, they previously showed through other studies how activating racism, such as asking people to write down their race before taking an exam, uh, impairs brain functions such as learning, memory and problem solving. So when your attention is drawn to your own race, presumably you become more fearful and anxious and that's, that's affecting your ability to use your prefrontal cortex or your frontal cortex for, for those higher level uh, thinking skills. So researchers have also documented, apparently, that chronic stress alters the function of brain regions such as the hippocampus that are targeted in brain diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. So there's a new field called social genomics. Social genomics, how do I pronounce it? I don't know. Which demonstrates how the function of genes, termed gene expression, is influenced by social conditions. So genes are programmed to turn on and off in, in a certain manner but those patterns of activity can shift depending on environmental exposures. So that experiment you just mentioned was an attempt to demonstrate that, creating an environmental condition of being asked to write down white or black in a, in a racial background box prior to sitting an exam will then impair your ability. So psychologists will determine something like this by having control groups. So maybe a group of white people and African-Americans African sitting an exam without that question, and then groups of African-Americans and white people with that racially loaded, well, not even loaded, that explicit racial question, write down your race on the box. So you become more self-conscious. Will I be judged because of um, my race? Uh, will I be? Will my resum results be fairly evaluated? Will somebody look at what I've written and, and prejudge me as 
as having inferior work because of their pre-existing prejudices, etc. So that if white people's performances were the same in both conditions, but African-Americans' performance was more impaired in the condition where they had to write down their race and they knew that white people would potentially be getting an advantage by writing down the word white uh, and that that was even a consideration that they had to entertain at all from social conditioning uh, just had an impact on performance. That would be how you would demonstrate something like that. All right, let me just check to see if there's any comments that I should be keeping up with. Uh, hello. Hello, I have an extra listener there. Hi. So, certain marginalized groups demonstrate abnormal patterns of gene activity in genes responsible for innate immunity, which is how we fight off pathogens. So... Environmental stresses like socioeconomic disadvantage or racism trigger your fight-or-flight response, leading to complex biochemical events that turn on genes, like the inflammation response gene, which may result in poor health outcomes. So increased activity of inflammation genes leads to decreased activity of innate um, genetic response innate immunity response to viruses. So you've got less ability to protect your body from disease if you have increased inflammation and you may have an increased chronic inflammation levels because of your increased activation of your parasympathetic nervous system because of your increased exposure to threats, explicit and implicit threats from people from racism. And just even the action of worrying about something bad happening to you, uh, potentially being a consequence of racism. So that level of stress. Is this bad thing happening to me because somebody has failed to protect me because I'm black? Is this bad thing happening to me because somebody has purposefully targeted me because I'm black? That very consideration leads to corticosteroid production, leads to arousal of the parasympathetic nervous system, leads to chronic inflammation, leads to suppression of immune response to viruses, leads to higher rates of all manner of diseases. Uh, so that would be interesting in explaining things. And this professor also suggests that interventions tailored towards reducing racism-associated stress may mitigate some of its adverse uh, effects on health. But now I want to share with you another article. Uh, and that article suggests... Okay, this is something I need to get up on the screen. Okay. Hey, that didn't work. All right, try again. There we go. All right, liberals who learned about white privilege became less sympathetic to poor white people, but not more sympathetic towards poor black people. So, I'm just seeing an ad that's come up about leaked internal documents revealing that moderators were trained to make distinctions between white supremacy. So Facebook allows white nationalist and separatist content while white supremacy is banned. Oh, thank you. Why Facebook made the distinction because white nationalism doesn't seem to always be associated with racism, at least not explicitly. Boycott Facebook, that's all I can say. Lordy. I don't know why I'm getting this as a pop-up ad, but they, they have definitely found an appropriate target audience. I am the target audience for that message. I already hate Facebook. Therefore, I am primed to believe additional bad things about Facebook and their activity. It fits into my pre-existing intellectual hierarchy, 
my pre-existing narratives that explain to me how the world works, that help me have a degree of cognitive integrity. So I know I always still have to prune that garden for weeds because I'm still exposed to uh, propaganda and everybody needs to be vigilant in pruning their own mental gardens because our assumptions, our understanding of the world is always informed to a degree by faulty information. We are still meat puppets grasping at shadows and that's why vigilance is necessary. Vigilance against fascism because of the human predilection, uh, particularly when separated by a long chronological period from war, we forget, uh, stuck in our complacent peacefulness and our prosperity, that we forget that humans have nihilistic tendencies to overreact to risks and start to destroy things around us and destroy our own communities and destroy our own civilizations. So Brian's saying he did a thread about Facebook today. I'll have to check that out on Twitter. Uh, somebody made an interesting point on Twitter that perhaps Democrats have watched a lot of West Wing and that we expect speeches to change political reality. So we get excited about good speeches but that our expectations are too high. Speeches don't change legislators' minds uh, because they usually already know what they want to do. Speeches might change that, that have a lot of um, traction in the public arena. Spe speeches might change public perceptions which might over time lead to an increase in public pressure for um, politicians to behave in a certain way. So that's more the, the flowchart direction of events. It's not Adam Schiff stands before Republican senators, speaks stirringly to them about their duty, about protecting America from the dangers of a lawless criminal president who betrays American interests, American geopolitical security, in favor of serving his own grasp on power. So Adam Schiff made a very stirring speech. To that end, I listened to it. I didn't intend to have tears brought to my eyes, but they nevertheless were. And presumably some of those tears were from knowing that Republican senators would still, in all likelihood, carry on their merry trajectory of, of treasonous behavior towards the United States, to betray their oaths of office, to betray their specific impeachment trial oaths to, to do impartial justice. <coughs> Pardon me. Adam Schiff didn't cough when making his speech. So, uh, yesterday I got to speak to a man called Matt Rogers, who has a reasonably large Twitter account called Politidope, and he's a staff member helping a Democratic state senator. Is it in Virginia or Pennsylvania? I think Virginia. And that was so great, and I'm really pleased to say that he might be back to talk again some more tomorrow. It was very energizing to talk with him. Uh, I shamed myself a tiny bit by being a little bit like a puppy in that I was very excited as an Australian to, to show off what I have learned about American politics over the course of the last two years, taking an interest in it, three years now, since President Trump uh, ran for, for office. So more, well, three years of taking it seriously in quite an intent way. Uh, maybe I should learn more, really. The next thing I intend to start learning about is redlining. Uh, I've got some resources lined up to read about that, but I just wanted to say that uh, I'm proud of what I'm learning, and to me that's an advantage to my audience because you don't have to worry about... Uh, being intimidated by what I know, and you can potentially provide a service to me if you can correct me on any misapprehensions I have about how American politics works. So I said to Matt yesterday that a lot of Americans seem very opinionated about their personal choice for presidential candidate, uh, 
and they have their ideas about why that person's policies are the best fit for America. And they often don't seem to be thinking about what candidate is the best fit for America. Uh, sometimes they do, but usually just when it's an easy grab to prejudice, such as saying, oh, a woman couldn't do it, or a woman um, might be less palatable to the American public. Now, I actually have sympathy with that point of view because I think the results of the Electoral College proved that there was a strong remnant streak of uh, entrenched prejudices against a female candidate. And we've seen how precarious the hold of democratic ideas are on the American public now because too many Americans in that Electoral College system were prepared to vote for someone with clear fascist leanings as a candidate. Anyone familiar with Hitler rhetoric and the escalation of hatred against minority groups, with the exciting and intoxicating promise of liberation from standards and humane considerations that that offers. So Trump in 2015, in 2016, was to people paying attention, clearly a fascist getting people drunk uh, on the promise that he would not be merciful to anybody, that he would be a strong man for America because he was prepared to renounce fairness. He wasn't bothered as to whether it would be fair to Mexican-Americans or Mexican people in general to describe all of them as criminals with some few minor exceptions. So Trump showed his hand, people paying attention uh, rational people were concerned about that. A lot of others in overly embraced that uh, spurious goal of being bipartisan, of looking, wanting to look fair to a candidate because they were Republican. Now we can see the ill-advisedness of doing that. Uh, we can see the dereliction of duty in doing that, of overlooking the tendency towards falsity, um, bankruptcy, association with money laundering crimes, etc., but also racism, we can, see, we can see the downside of so many people in the media and so many people in positions of power being so naive as to overlook all of those red flag, fascist red flags. And consequences roll on and you can see that fascism co-ops people and institutions very readily because it's, it's power without oversight. And that's very attractive. It's power without checks and balances. And Americans are supposed to be so proud of their checks and balances that they believe that system will hold even when faced with a tyrant. Uh, but the founders knew that tyrants can be appealing, can promise the world. They just didn't expect I guess computer hacking to exist and compromising emails to exist so that the Republican Party could be dragged into uh, supporting a powerful corrupt man. He gives them more power, that's the carrot, and he and the Russians don't reveal whatever incriminating material was in their hacked emails. Thank you for the compliment. Uh, Ego F. Berg. Uh, much appreciated. Um, all right, let's see if we want to... Oh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, so conservatives who learned about white privilege didn't gain any sympathy to poor black people. But for liberals... Uh, Wow, so white privilege training didn't make conservative people become any more sympathetic to poor black people. For liberals, the results were alarming. Liberals who read the educational materials about white privilege were still unsympathetic to poor black people, but became even more unsympathetic to poor white people. So when some white people who are poor complain that they are losing out because we're talking more about racism towards black people, 
They literally are, because whilst it's difficult to quantify the monetary value of public sympathy, public sympathy and a loss of public sympathy results in a loss of public pressure on politicians to take care of people from poor white demographic groups. So there was, there's already a pre-existing lack of sympathy towards poor black people in American society, but teaching, teaching people about white privilege, that's amazing to think that it's not helping liberal sympathy. Well, maybe the sympathy of liberals for poor black people has already hit a ceiling because I have read this article before and I seem to remember from looking at the graph that the sympathy level for poor black people was still higher amongst liberals than it was amongst conservatives. Let's have a look. Uh, actually, I have not read this particular article, but the good thing is this article gives me the name of the researcher. Her surname is Cooley. I'll be able to find her. Ah, so this is a conservative study, which is why they're not really accurately reporting on the findings. Because, yeah, I looked at some of the original graphs from that. Okay, let's find the first name. Erin Cooley, okay. And we will stop sharing that particular article because it's not true. Well, it's not a, a holistically accurate representation. Erin Cooley. It's hard because I'm just getting conservative reports about this story, but I want her original report about it. So I'm trying to find an article where she herself was the author. <laughs> Difficult. All right, well, let's see if there's anybody else with anything to say. I'm turning this over to you guys. Uh, is a Yahoo article. Nope, even the Yahoo article is still still republishing. Alright, fine. We will go to the actual research article, which means it's going to be written less um, <laughs> written less uh oh ah Bob's here hi Bob I'm just trying to find an article to share with everybody and the article is okay called complex intersections of race and class amongst social liberals learning about white privilege reduces sympathy, increases blame, and decreases external attributions for white people suffering, struggling with po poverty. I can decode some of that psych speak for you. Decreases external attributions means uh, makes, makes social liberals like myself uh, less likely to, to make, to find external reasons, like to believe that poor white people are poor as a consequence of factors outside of their control. So external attributions, things outside of their control, we're more likely to, say, to think badly, like you, you failed yourself, 
you are good for nothing. So there, there has become in the US a decrease in sympathy towards poor white people and poor white people are punishing us for that. All right, so let's read the abstract. White privilege lessons are sometimes used to increase awareness of racism. However, little research has investigated the consequence of these lessons. Across two, two studies, we hypothesized that white privilege lessons may both highlight structural privilege based on race and simultaneously decrease sympathy for other challenges some white people endure, especially amongst social liberals who may be partic particularly receptive to structural explanations of inequality. Indeed, both studies revealed that while social liberals were more overall more sympathetic to poor people than social conservatives, reading about white privilege decreased their sympathy for a poor white versus black person. White privilege lessons may increase beliefs that poor white people have failed to take advantage of their racial privilege, leading to negative social evaluations. Okie dokie. Wow, how's that? How's that for an insight as to possibly one reason why uh, there is a grievance culture amongst poor white people in the US. There's also a grievance culture amongst wealthy white people in the US because they've been working on that for a long time and I would imagine that's a product of inability to resolve shame uh, and inability to resolve historic shame associated with slavery and uh, lynching and Jim Crow and all of the various systematic outrages perpetrated against people of color in the US. So white people, wealthy white people who haven't been able to resolve those emotional considerations for themselves turn instead to whitewashing history, like literally trying to minimize the truth. Uh, I hear Texas, Texas textbooks often don't mention uh, the truth or seem to imply that discrimination against black people ended with the end of slavery or with, ended with abolition. Uh, hmm. And I want to share something I passed on uh, about shame from an American veteran who I think was running for Congress at one point but withdrew after realizing he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And he wrote a, a very insightful thread about how he was an intelligence expert. It was his job to liaise with people in Afghanistan. He worked with a team and they saw people who had been injured and people who'd been killed and they often had to evaluate risks, but he was never himself injured. And consequently, when he had a lot of the health problems and emotional health problems associated with post-traumatic stress disorder upon return to civilian life, he discounted his own experience. He didn't believe that he could have post-traumatic stress disorder. He didn't believe that for years and he didn't check in with the people he used to work with, he used to work with. So he was suggesting to people that they should do that, just look out for people in similar situations to you. Because once he did that and found out that they were suffering similarly to him, he was able to take his own suffering more seriously and to make proper, to take proper mitigatory actions um, to help himself and to reduce the negative effects of untreated post-traumatic stress disorder on his life. And this was a very important thread for me to read. But in the comments section, there was also a woman saying, yes, her husband had committed suicide um, and was a veteran and she was clearly feeling sad about her own efforts. She was saying maybe if I'd listened to him more, maybe if I'd taken his comments more seriously. And Jason comforted her and said, you have to put that shame down. And that was one of the most uh, powerful sentences I'd ever read. You have to put that shame down. And I found it very helpful because I've never been involved in war, but to be given permission from a veteran. And he was giving her permission to put that shame down, not me. But I could 
extend that logic to myself and to say anything we do that's making us less productive, anything that we, we could guess is a irrational overattachment to guilt, to thinking we still have to continue to punish ourselves for something negative that happened or some way in which we feel that we were less than stellar. It is not productive to go through life continually beating yourself up about failures. Failures are an inevitable part of, of being human. Yes, failing to listen to someone who was suffering from emotional problems, uh, failing to do all manner of things, failing to cut the crusts off your child sandwich, oh, my children don't care about that. Failing to remember that your child might have mufti dress on a day. Anyway, you cannot create a dehabilitating uh, emotional context for yourself to try and function as a human being in. It's not sensible, it's not, it doesn't support your community, it doesn't support your world. You have to put that shame down. And uh, people in my comments sections are noting that when the UN investigated poverty in Alabama, some of it, some of the early comments said it was the most abject they'd seen in the world. Uh, so it was similar to third world countries. Uh, and it wasn't, presumably that poverty wasn't associated with just people in black communities, it was associated with white people in predominantly white communities or, or just just without discrimination, that there was poverty amongst all ethnic groupings and poverty of a level that was extraordinary and surprising for a first world country. Uh, so yes, in order to build an effective coalition, Champagne Chachi is saying, uh, we need to have poor white people on board well, yes, to build a coalition, you need as many of every type of demographic as you can possibly get, uh, whilst noting that some people are not a good return for time investment if you have a limited window to persuade people. But in terms of long-term projects going forwards, yes, white, poor white people uh, have been exposed to propaganda, leading them to think that their enemies are people with education. When people with education are often people who fight for uh, greater equality in society and fight for services for poor and marginalised people. It's often wealthy people without college degrees who are very steadfast in their support for Republican politicians who take things from poor white people and take services and take government services whilst tricking them that they will maintain a racial hierarchy and that that is the true pathway to, to having fairness, to being comfortable and content with your life. That they will preserve a time-honored historical hierarchy in American life, which is that poor people should be worse off than white people. So I cannot correctly remember the quote at this point nor can I remember the Republican president who said it. Was it LBJ? Some American significant political figure who said um, the poorest white person, you can take away from the poorest white person as long as you assure them that black people are lower than them. Uh, so yes, we need a word for something that's not racism, but we need a term or a phrase for discrimination against poor people. So I don't need to break it down into poor people, or poor white or poor black people. There needs to be a term for the economic discrimination against poor people that is systemic. That means poor people often have to pay more bank fees, are hit with more fines for having low, low sums in their bank accounts, etc. Grimmage, if you don't enjoy what I have to offer to Americans, you really shouldn't be haunting my comment section. I appreciate your knowledge and your on-the-ground potential American experience if you, are, if you are a real American, but if you're not interested in what I have to say, feel 
feel free to leave. Uh, and as somebody noted, uh, somebody noted uh, the same UN investigation in Australia. Well, it wasn't the same UN investigation. It was a, a distinct one in Australia, but also uncovered uh, similar rates of systemic entrenched poverty amongst Indigenous communities, meaning Aboriginal Australians living in uh, significant levels of poverty as well. And I think Australians have been able to reconcile themselves to that, possibly because of the very dispersed uh, nature of Aboriginal habitation. But we also have an under-examined uh, and ignored history of racial persecution. So people of Aboriginal background being denied wages, being denied not only wage equality with their white co-workers, but also their wages being entirely withheld, as well as there being such high levels of racial animosity that white people would put out supplies for Aboriginal people uh, and poison them. So poisoned flour from white people wanting to look helpful and secretly murder uh, the racial group they saw as their competitors and a threat. That's not just uh, needing a racial hierarchy of being superior to black people, that's just actively massacring and murdering uh, people of colour in Australia. And that has a long history that is more recent than some people want to admit to and some people are comfortable admitting to. So I want to bring more people on board with admitting to that because you have to put that shame down. You have to be able to deal with reality and if shame is preventing you from contending with the very real things that have happened then don't be ashamed for other people's actions just be honest and be be less afraid fear flourishes in darkness and when you only subconsciously admit that there's been oppression of black people in America and oppression of black people in Australia, then your fears about what might be necessary to fix that situation or to try and mitigate or address some of the uh, extended consequences of, of that persecution, then, then you can't deal with it properly. Your fears will be ungoverned because it's harder to govern in darkness. So, every bit of work that we do to shed light on historical and continuing persecution of people of colour, ongoing historical and ongoing um, discrimination. So let's talk about historical problems first because those historical mass murders are something that we have ostensibly moved on from. We don't there's less cases now of people poisoning the flower that would be frowned on so there's less explicit um, murderous attacks on people of color but there are still those vestigial sentiments that have not gone away merely because we have had leaders who openly professed commitment to the idea of moving away from racism and prejudice and irrational ordering of of society in a hierarchy of merit according to race. So we... Oh, Grimmage, you probably get muted all the time by my administrators uh, because you say things that show troll intent. So when you say, why do Australians think they can lecture Americans? Of course you're going to be muted by my administrators because that sounds like a troll who's here to try to diminish whatever authority I bring to the table. And it's not a great deal of authority. It's just the authority of someone who's prepared to try and be authentic and honest and work through some of the implications of our mutual history as white colonialist societies that are trying to move on from the consequences of our past and 
reduce the amount of vestigial racism that we carry with us because racism is a double-edged sword or a sword with um not a scabbard what's it called what's a part of a sword when you hold it i'm not very good with military things so there's swords and then there's things that you grasp not haunch not scabbard anyway the bit of a sword that you hold if it's a racist sword has spikes in it that might not obviously damage you you might not realize it but that are causing you damage and i referenced a study the other day that we looked up that said uh in communities that where people have high rates of explicit racism those people also have negative health outcomes so there are there's an increased rate in heart conditions associated with being the kind of person that's comfortable with being explicitly racist the hilt thank you too bad he can't reply cuz he was already banned Now, Holly, you're saying you still feel a little bit of shame. I'm going to suggest we convert that shame into determination and honesty. I'm sure you're already very honest. I know you're already very honest, but what we need is to recognize that if we carry shame, the rest of America that we want to to bring into our consensus, the rest of America uh will see that shame as weakness. They're like we don't want to be in a society where people are overburdened by shame. And they think people who learn about white privilege are shamed, weakened people who can't stand up to defend their own nation from attack. That's why they think 9/11 happened. Hi Craig. Uh so we need to fight that narrative to say okay, look If we didn't do it, if we didn't do something wrong, we are going to put that shame down. Because we can't carry that shame and still have room for the weapons of honesty, honest confrontation. Because it takes honesty, honest engagement to be able to form the resolve to do better. So there's not room for shame when you have to go, yes, that is what was done. And yes, we benefit from that why people have colonized other nations and vanquished them and murdered them etc and we are left with the benefits of that but i'm i'm still glad you said what you said bob because uh lots of people are ashamed and and our shame is held up as being a model for the weakening of america and that helps drive conservatives away from recognizing democrats as people they recognize democrats as a threat and they think it's a threat to the strength of america and as a consequence of those fears and that risk calculation they have led in the biggest threat uh america has ever seen into office they have led in a criminal uh who who allows himself to be influenced by a hostile foreign leader multiple hostile foreign leaders uh and this predates trump though this tendency to value conservatism and conservative relationships so that the role of saudi arabia in 911 uh could be denied oh let me see if i can find this article now because propublica published something today let's see if it's propublica Saudi Arabia 9/11 Oh and then I have to go Okay Operation Encore is this the one and Okay, so maybe the article wasn't published today. It was published on January the 23rd. I only saw it today. So what I'm going to do is 
remove that and share the screen with the ProPublica article. How is that? How is that, guys? This is an article. I will put it up on a banner. Okay, here we go. Now people will be able to see it for themselves. I haven't even made my way all the way through it, but it has some fairly uh, convincing evidence that there were certain uh, threads, oh, threads of the investigation that weren't followed. Um, some of Robert Mueller's testimony about 9-11 was not made public. Uh, Hang on, I'm going to stop it just so that I don't hurt your eyes scrolling downwards. Does it hurt when, is it distressing when I scroll through an article while I'm reading it out loud, if I scroll through rapidly? I'm going to find something for you that I think is probably the most pertinent passage that I've come to so far. It took me a long time to read it as much as I did. There was a witness who was a roommate of two of the Saudi hijackers uh, who was eventually deported to Yemen and then one Los Angeles detective ended up following him, uh, befriending him, creating a mocked up uh, photo of a five-year-old to, to appear to be the child from an informal marriage that the detective knew the guy had briefly entered into just after 9-11 with a 16-year-old girl. Uh, let's see. Well, I'll go back to here. The, uh, oh, okay. Uh, so, yes, I'm talking about this just because uh, Robert Mueller does seem to have been involved and it would be interesting to know what he knows but more importantly it just sounds like there's a lot more room for Americans to question the US-Saudi alliance. It sounds like there was likely official involvement between uh, Saudi Arabian spies and people from the Saudi Arabian uh, embassy in coordinating and finding places to stay for the two hijackers who had arrived from Saudi Arabia. So, so I just think that's really important to, to share amongst yourselves. Uh, so please do that. Oh, Brian, you can't see it on your phone. Yeah, that's, that's fine. Thank you for even watching on your phone. That's probably still too small for people. Uh, oh, I can read it that way. On orders, the harried Pentbomb, the Pentbomb of the team investigating 9-11, they logged more than 250,000 leads, but a number of clues suggested Saudi involvement. Yes, so Trump has sold nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. He's also suggested that uh, Saudi Arabia are their friends because they give you money. He's sent uh, American troops to Saudi Arabia in exchange for them paying a billion dollars, according to Trump. We don't know where that billion dollars has been paid to. Uh, yes. Uh, so yes, the FBI there was skepticism was in the FBI hierarchy about the idea that Saudis were linked to the case. He realized, a detective realized nobody was interested in his opinion. Uh, parts of Mueller's testimony remained secret, but he did play down the idea that the hijackers had any established support network 
in the United States or should have drawn FBI scrutiny. While here, the hijackers effectively operated without suspicion, triggering nothing that alerted law enforcement. Uh, so that, when you read the whole article, that assertion by Robert Mueller seems less than adequate, which is sad. I mean, I obviously looked up to Robert Mueller and still have hope that some of the investigations he farmed out to various areas uh, will yield results in terms of the different strands of Trump criminal behaviour. Nevertheless, he does seem to have bailed on a very critical moment in American history uh, to perhaps pay less obeisance to America's legal structures and just let the public be warned that, you know, he hinted at it in very roundabout, very legalistic language that the president had, was not to be trusted. And he made the obstructive uh, instances that he documented quite clear, but he was, was only able to say things in double negatives. Like, had we been able to exonerate the president, we certainly would have done so. Oh, yay, that's so clear, that's great for alerting Americans to the fact that their criminal, obstruct, their criminal president obstructed justice, which is a crime, a crime that robs the American people of the accountability they need in their political system to protect their country from tyranny, from, from the rule of an unaccountable autocrat who, I mean, the disadvantages of having kings and autocrats as leaders is that they are not they are not connected in any way to the bulk of the public conscience because democracy is that gamble against tyranny that says uh, people can people can potentially identify a tyrant and they can potentially vote a tyrant away from power they can vote against a tyrant uh, because you can't hopefully fool a majority of the people. So even though a majority of Americans were not fooled by Trump, did not vote for Trump, the American electoral system had this vestigial concession to rural land-owning Americans who existed in the time of the Constitution, which means land-owning slave owners, because rural holdings were um, derived their profits from the unpaid labor of slaves. That was how farms worked. You had slaves to man your farms, slaves to do all of, or most of America's early agricultural labor. And a lot of American prosperity has that as its foundational stone. And those attitudes did not dissipate in the rural South. They were more likely to dissipate in the urban areas where exposure to migrants is more likely to reduce uh, anti-migrant sentiment, especially when existing in conjunction with lots of education. Uh, oh, here is a diplomat called Fahad al-Thumayri. Uh, who also served as an imam at the, the mosque that was attended by the um, hijackers, I think. Anyway, this is very complicated. I'll return to that article. I just wanted to pique your interest in it, get people um, talking about it. Um, more conspiracies to disorient Americans. This is a very well-sourced article. They've interviewed detectives uh, and quote from, from Mueller's investigation and they have scrupulously followed some of the leads pertaining to 9-11 investigations. So no, what rock have you been hiding under if you're not already preliminary aware that Saudi Arabians were protected from public outrage post 9-11 because some of the wealthiest ones were spirited out of the country on planes. That, that actually I don't know in a way that's, yes, unsubstantiated uh, claim there. It might be substantiated but I'm not aware of it, that's something I've heard. But this article by ProPublica seems to be very well researched.
yes, free men could vote property owners and their first sons. Look, dude, ProPublica is a very reputable organization. I'm not quoting uh, from Alex Jones at you. 